What is the symbolic meaning of the female attributes found on pendants from the late Bronze Age Levant? Were they meant to symbolize fertility, or were they referring to an Egyptian goddess and her powers? Welcome back to another Friends of Asor podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Anderson. In this podcast, I called up ancient historian and author Stephanie Buden. We discussed her recent article, Reduced to Her Bare Essentials, Bronze Age Piriform Pendants in the Levant. It was featured in a special issue of Near Eastern Archaeology magazine on gender archaeology. Uh, I would say that it is an analysis of a specific style of uh, anthropomorphic pendant that shows up in the late Bronze Age throughout the Levant, even making it as far as Cyprus. It shows, more often than not, a Hathor face, breasts, navel, and female genitalia, but that's it. And what I'm trying to do is understand what that very schematic presentation of the female meant to the people who made and used and potentially wore these pendants. And what time period does your article focus on? Uh, It really does scan the late Bronze Age. So let's say we're going back to about 1600-1550 BCE, coming as far forward as maybe 1200 to 1150 BCE. So I guess my big question is, why create an anthropomorphic pendant? And I guess, what would they have been used for? Well, (laughs) there are, it it depends on the anthropomorphic pendant. I mean, just think in modern religion now. Imagine someone who is wearing um, a St. Christopher pendant, right? You know, you might just look at that and say, okay, it's a guy holding a kid on his shoulders. Uh, Okay, that's kind of cute. Is it a reference to paternity? Well, you look at the iconography across time, and of course we have written records, and so we know that this is specifically a portrayal of St. Christopher, and he's understood to be a patron saint of travelers. So this is the sort of thing that you might wear or hang in your car to give you good luck when, say, trying to drive in Miami or something (laughs) like that. So (laughs) there are all different reasons why people are going to create Uh, different styles of anthropomorphic jewelry and why they are going to wear them. So the question more specifically here, I guess we have to get a little bit deeper, is it's not just that it's an anthropomorphic representation, but what is it supposed to be an anthropomorphic representation of? So if it's okay with you, let's actually start with that question, and then we can come back to maybe what the answer to your original question was. Is that okay? Yeah, that's great. Okay. I honestly did not know the answer to that question when I started this project. I was simply really interested in these representational pendants, or Negbi has dubbed, uh, dubbed them in her work on Canaanite gods and metal, which is like one of the masterpieces in the field. Um, I just thought it was very interesting that you have a very uh, long-standing iconographic tradition in the Near East of different types of nude females. Uh, apparently, nude females are always in fashion. <laughs> Though you have old Babylonian plaques, you have Sumerian jug handles, you have Egyptian potency figurines. So they're all different types. This particular one was really interesting because instead of showing an entire nude female on Foss, which is usually what you see, it was really schematic. It was shorthand. It's like face, breast, navel, crotch. There we go. (laughs) Just the main bits. (laughs) And maybe some leaves. Okay, fine. But they're not covering anything. So, you know, Uh, we got the essentials. And I was really curious as to, well, what could this mean? What is so important that you're highlighting these 
as you might say, fertility-oriented attributes or erotic attributes. You know, can we even decide one or the other? Uh, so that was how I got uh, interested originally, and I just was trying to understand what that was. Now, one of the most consistent features and one of the things that was very important for me was that about 75% of the extant piriform figurines that we have have a Hathor face. Now, Hathor's face, this comes from Egyptian iconography. It is really distinctive. It is always en face, so she's always looking right at you. You're never seeing her in profile in the standard uh, Hathoric face iconography. She has kind of bovine ears, so kind of triangular or rectilinear ears that are up a little too high on her face. She always has a hairstyle the same way. It is parted in the center. It cascades to either side of her face perfectly symmetrically, and she always has an outward moving, if you will, curl uh, on either side of the face, either under the chin or just above the so shoulders. That is always Hathor, and that iconography ranges from architectural capitals on buildings to little good luck pendants that you might wear as a piece of jewelry and almost anything in between. So it is really regular and very consistent. And the fact that so many of these piriform pendants had that icon very specifically suggested, okay, we're looking at something that is more than just mortal. And for the record, this is kind of interesting, and I was uh, thinking about it when considering this interview, that you rarely have forward-facing females in ancient Near Eastern art. If you think of Egyptian art, most people, males and females, are generally kind of looking off to the side, right? Oh, really? And you also get that a lot with Near Eastern art. Think of your cylinder seals, for example, and the one major exception to that as far as females are concerned is Ishtar. So that forward-facing female, which is fun to say, uh, is really a kind of a symbol of power, so it kind of has its own divinity in its own right, and you are very consistently getting that with these images. So they are somehow empowered, they consistently have Hathor faces to them, so they really do seem to be related to the realm of the divine more so than the mundane. So that's how I initially came up with the notion that they're probably representing something divine, not necessarily a goddess, but something more than just the mundane realm. Then you have that branch. Normal women aren't normally walking around with branches, to the best <laughs> of my knowledge. You know, you don't see it too much in the ancient art. So it seems that not only do you have something consistently portrayed with a divine face, but that it has an attribute as well. And usually when you get these kind of attributes in Near Eastern art, both in Egypt and in the Near East, the Levant, Mesopotamia, this is also the sign that you're trying to represent a divinity. So those are the reasons why it seemed that these images portray pertain to the divine realm. The fact that you're usually using this Hathor face was strongly suggesting Hathor. Then the fact that they first appear in Tel el Ajul was relevant because that is the ultimate mixing spot between Levantine and Egyptian culture. And what goddess in the Egyptian pantheon is most closely associated with the East, with the Canaanites, with foreigners in general, well, it's Hathor. So, so many points kept coming back to this goddess that eventually, whether I, I wanted it to go that direction or not, everything kept leading back to Hathor. So that's how I wound up there. From that point, I just started considering, well, yeah, she's strongly associated with breasts and nursing and lactation. She's very strongly associated with sexuality. She's even known in Egyptian as the lady of the vulva. And, well, here's a giant crotch looking yeah, right at they you. they put on the pendant. <laughs> yep. And she's also the Egyptian goddess most closely associated with trees and foliage. So, once again, everything kept coming back to the symbolism of this one particular goddess. So, eventually became 
hard to argue against the idea that this particular item pertained to this particular Egyptian goddess. The Egyptian goddess most likely to be associated with Levant and showing up in the Levantine town most closely associated with Egypt. So, coming back to that original question of yours, why would people wear them? Once again, you say wear that pendant of St. Christopher because he's associated with safety during travel. Well, what are the things that Hathor is associated with and what kind of uh, powers would you necessarily want to derive? Well, she can be associated with eroticism. So if you're trying to be particularly attractive, if you're trying to lure the love of your life, you might want to invoke her aid a little bit. She's associated with very high-ranking royal-level uh, lactation, but if this is something you're familiar with, you might want to wear it for that. If you just think of her as sexual or powerful, maybe you're just trying to get a little bit of her good graces. You know, in the, hi, I'm wearing your pendant, smile on me, you're a powerful deity. So there are all number of reasons why you might want to wear an icon of her image and her power, for very specific reasons or for very general ones. And who would have owned or like worn these pendants? Would it have been everyday people? Would it have been like uh, maybe like priests or priestesses? Would it have been maybe people of a higher class? Who would have worn them? It seems uh, based on the somewhat crude rendering of the pendants themselves and where they were found that these were items of personal piety. So, you know, maybe a priest or priestess uh, might have worn them. We have less evidence for priestesses in this part of the world than we do for priests, even in the Bronze Age. But these were uh, mostly found in a series of hordes in Tel Elijul, at least, uh, when we have good context. Not in the areas associated with the palaces or necessarily the high temples, but in horde context, but in areas where there were just domestic dwellings. Because they were found in hordes, it's pretty much impossible to determine who originally owned them or used them. Now, what but is a horde? A horde is when somebody gathered together a whole bunch of old stuff, old jewelry, potentially to bury it because we're getting invaded, to melt it down because we want to make new stuff out of it. Mm. But it's not like you're finding it necessarily in someone's jewelry box or in a bedroom or in what would have been a primary use context. But for some reason, many of these objects with other golden objects were simply pulled together, but we don't necessarily know why. So when they're found in a hoard, you don't get a really good sense of how they were being used in daily life. But considering where the hoards themselves were, it seems to suggest that these were objects of personal piety, that the average man and woman on the street would have worn them, not necessarily a queen, not necessarily a priestess, but not necessarily excluding those categories either. They're made out of gold, which is prestige material, but they're made kind of tackily, so it's not high-end jewelry that we're looking at here. It's kind of bling, if you really accept the, uh, the terminology there. Would these have been something that maybe the people made themselves, or would they have bought them somewhere? Probably bought them, because they're regular enough that you would suggest that one or two uh, goldsmiths are making them and then selling them. They don't have the kind of individuality that would suggest that each person at home is making his or her own. Now, uh, you started to talk about that some of them are made from gold. Uh, Did the material of the pendant have any significance other than just how much it would cost? Well, there's definitely the prestige value. Um, Bear in mind, most of them are gold. There's one that's electrum and one that is in silver, but the rest of the ones that have been found are gold. So it seems to be important that it is of that specific medium. The earliest ones were found in Tel El 
which was, or is at least nowadays, considered famous for its gold working. So they have some very high-end goldsmiths. Uh, so this is a part of a rather high-end repertoire for the area. If, in fact, they do represent Hathor, it might have the additional meaning because she's also known as the Golden One, the Golden Goddess. And so the medium itself might once again reflect on the iconography and the symbolism of the goddess. Hmm. Interesting. And what got you interested in not only just studying or, you know, teaching ancient history, but also these pendants in particular? I am somewhat obsessed with new female, nude female iconography. Uh, I started looking at a lot of it when I was writing my dissertation on Aphrodite many, many years ago. And it's going to be the topic of my next book, so I'm looking more intently at it now. What's fascinating is that you, you have this icon that starts off in Mesopotamia. It makes it all the way to Spain in the west. It makes it as far as India in the east. Um, so it gives a wonderful sense of how uh, trade works, how people adopt and adapt each other's iconography and material culture. But the other thing that I noticed when I was working on it is it's a very complex topic. And one of the complicating factors is that different cultures and societies have their own versions of, well, naked females. Like I said before, we're always fashionable. So that you have what what might be called the nude goddess icon that comes from Mesopotamia. It goes up into Anatolian Syria. It works its way down into the Levant. And this is usually an enfance female once again, with uh, very strongly portrayed erotic attributes, breasts, pubic triangle, vulva, that sort of thing. And it seems to be associated with the cult of Inanna very, very early on. By the time it gets to Syria, it gets associated with other goddesses like Shala, uh, the, the wife of the rain god, for example. But then you go down into, say, Egypt, and they have a tradition of what I call potency figurines. And these seem to be magical items that were used to raise the potency of magical spells and incantations. So what happens when you get to a part of the world like the Southern Levant, where these two separate, or at least originally separate, iconographies start influencing one another, and you start seeing aspects of potency figurines in uh, Near Eastern nude goddess iconography and aspects of the nude goddess iconography influencing the iconography down in Egypt. So once again, this mixing of cultures is what really, really appeals to me. And that's one of the things that we see here with the piriform pendants. You see Hathoric ideology and iconography from Egypt influencing a received nude female tradition from the Levant. And you just wind up with these lovelies. So how do you know or how does anyone know that these pendants or iconography were used as more of like a worshipping or... um, I don't want to say good luck charm, but as like a charm of some sort, as opposed to maybe being some erotic imagery. Well, I I don't think those have to be mutually exclusive. I think what any individual image means to the person who is using it is going to be very relational, is going to be very idiosyncratic. um, think, if you will, of just, you know, to, once again, to use a modern example, think of a cross. You can have one person who is wearing a cross pendant 
because she's deeply religious and this is a symbol of her religion and her God and her relationship to the divine. And the goth sitting next to her on the bus is wearing it because she's really into vampire culture and Buffy wore a cross. So it's the same image being used and understood in two completely different ways by people who can be sitting right next to one another in the same town, in the same time, in the same place. So I think that always has to be kept in mind when dealing with objects of personal adornment and personal piety. So there's one idea that might have been in the mind of the person who created the image, uh, a separate one, or potentially the same in whoever acquires that image, wears it or not. I think that that's like sense? my, yeah, it makes perfect sense. I think that's one of my favorite answers I've ever received. Um, so what is the title of your next book? Uh, I think the title is going to be uh, The Nude Goddess and Her Sisters because I'm going to be looking at the continuous tradition that started in 3rd millennium Mesopotamia of this nude goddess iconography that actually, I love it, they started off as jar handles. And you can actually watch the icon move to different media, um, so uh, in the round terracottas, but also the glyptic art. Um, it spreads up into Turkey. It goes down into Egypt, changing. How do you know it spreads? How do you know what? How do you know that it spreads up through Turkey and then back down to Cyprus? How do you know it, it's spreading and they're not just happening upon, you know, maybe like reinventing the wheel? A lot of times the iconography is just too similar. Mm. So you have in, say, uh, late third millennium Syria, like especially at Ebla, we have a number of good examples. You have an in-the-round terracotta figurine. Um, the arms are kind of minimal, a little stumpy, but they are outstretched. You have breasts. Sometimes you'll have a crisscross over the chest, and you will have a very clearly rendered pubic triangle, legs together separated by a groove. And you will see this going from eastern uh, Syria farther over into the west. And then you wind up with almost identical terracotta figurines in late Bronze Age Cyprus, who we know for a fact are having contacts with Syria during this period. So the probability that you're going to have roughly identical images showing up ex nihilo, I mean, literally, they had nothing quite like this in Cyprus before it, um, right when you have this period of cultural exchange, the weight of the argument is definitely that they are borrowing this image along with a lot of other aspects of uh, Levantine cult in the late Bronze Age in Cyprus. And that's just to give one example. So... You can actually watch the individual periods of evolution, how this starts becoming more detailed, this gets better rendered, um, how this takes one fork here, this takes a separate development there. Um, so that's one of the ways that you can see a continuous development. But another thing is that you do wind up with independent developments in these various societies. So, for example, you have a Anfas, or at least mostly Anfas, nude female who shows up in the old Babylonian terracotta plaque repertoire. And there's nothing divine about her at all. There's no way you could ever argue that this is a goddess. But, okay, how do you distinguish this nude female from the nude female over here who does seem to be divine? So then you have to start saying, well, this one's standing on a lion. <laughs> Most women I know don't do that. So we're probably looking at a goddess here. Whereas this other one who's just, you know, looking kind of meek and demure and maybe holding a baby to her side that looks like something you'd hang up as a good luck charm in your house. Okay, that's probably mortal. 
Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of information that I'm trying to gather together and work with for the new book. So that, oh, you know, it's that new female. It's the, well, no, there's all different types, and they're literally cross-fertilizing. Interesting. So trying to tease out the different strands and understand what each one means in its own context is what I'm basically interested in. And do you have a lot of, um, like, a lot of pendants or a lot of iconography that you can research and look at? Or is it kind of, like, rare? No, there is tons of it out there. Like I said, it shows up in so many different media. You have it in gold. These piriform examples are one example. You find it in late Bronze Age and early Iron Age Cyprus in the same way. You find it decorating gold bowls from the Phoenicians, which, of course, make their way over into Greece, where they also start having them in ivory. The glyptic is filled with them, and you can always distinguish between the Mesopotamian glyptic and the Syrian glyptic, depending on how that nude female is represented. You have examples in terracotta and faience and gold from Egypt. So there are so many of them, and like I said, trying to figure out how to categorize them and what is referring to what. So for example, you have um, with these piriform pendants, that Hathor face that I was telling you about, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there's also much later, starting in the early 13th century, a completely different deity in Egypt itself. Uh, her name is Kedeshet. At least that's how we uh, normalize the writing. Hmm. So this is a goddess who also has the Hathor head. She is always presented nude on Fos. She is your typical nude goddess icon. And we can determine exactly when her cult began in Egypt and what the influences are that brought her there. And they have nothing whatsoever to do with the piriform pendants who show up earlier and who have the exact same face and head. And what makes her typical? I'm sorry, what? What You said she's a typical goddess. What makes her typical? What makes her typical? Uh, She has that kind of divine head, so Hathor, so it's indicating divinity. She is absolutely on sauce. Every once in a while, her feet may turn to the side, Mm. but the rest of her is always blatant. She always has well-rendered breast, navel, pubic triangle. It's like she's just done, like it's like a copy and paste job, like she's always the same. Yes, and she even stands on a lion, another good tip there that you're dealing with a divinity, not a mortal woman. Oh, I just meant like what made her like that goddess specifically as opposed to being like, oh, is this another Hathor? Hmm. (laughs) No, uh, a typical nude goddess for that kind of iconography, and yet Mm. she has her own identity and her own history. I'd say one of my all-time favorites is a gold foil kudshu plaque, as I call them, call them from, this one is specifically from Ugarit. She is in the Louvre. She is AO14714. That is how much I've studied her. I know her accession number. And she is, she is one of the most fascinating specimens, um, of the iconography because of the kind of mixture of iconographies that she portrays. So basically, she is one of the examples. Okay, it gets a little bit complicated here. So I was just mentioning a goddess down in Egypt who's named Kedeshet, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Kedeshet was introduced into Egypt from Anatolia, which is where that original iconography actually evolved. And the reason that I say that we know that Kedeshet was introduced, um, or at least her iconography was introduced into Egypt in the early 13th century, is it seems that her image was brought down by one or two Hittite princesses who were married to Ramses II 
in around uh, 1279 or so, because that's when we start seeing the iconography. It's only in the 19th dynasty. But before that, we see kind of earlier versions of this iconography of the Amphas female who is kind of holding her two arms symmetrically up on either side of her body, and she's usually grasping caprids, so goats or small antelope or something like that. And we start seeing those fairly early on in Anatolia, so in that Hittite realm, if you will, and then it starts spreading down into northern Syria. It eventually makes it its way all the way down into Egypt, where it becomes manifest as Kedeshet, and then that Kedeshet iconography starts working its way back northward again into the Levant, except at that point, she's not holding caprids anymore, she's holding flowers. So what we have with this particular example in the Louvre, the one from Ugarit, is your good Kudshu iconography, so she looks like Kedeshet, she's the new goddess, she's looking at Yuan Fas, she has your standard Hathor head. She's holding caprids in her hand, so we know that she's an example of the northern variety. She's standing on a line because, you know, that's what they do. But what's really particularly cool about this one, other than the fact that it's actually just aesthetically beautiful, it's really well made, is she has snakes behind her. There are a pair of snakes that are crisscrossing kind of behind her hips and adorning the plaque that she's standing on. Now, the reason that this is so interesting for me particularly is you never, ever, ever see kudshu plaques with snakes on them outside of Egypt. Now, in Egypt, Kedeshet, she's inevitably holding in one hand flowers of some sort, lotus potentially, and in her other hand, she's holding snakes. And this seems to suggest that she has the powers of rejuvenation in one hand, the flowers, and the ability to protect from evil because she's controlling snakes in her other hand. You never see the snakes in the Levantine examples, and I think the reason for this is that your standard nude female on a plaque holding snakes in Mesopotamia and the Levant is Lamashtu. She's a baby-eating demon. You don't want to... <laughs> don't want to confuse the two. Her. Yeah, yeah, bad association. But it seems that whoever made this gold plaque in Ugarit kind of knew about that Egyptian tradition and kind of tried to work in the snakes, but in a non-threatening way. So once again, outside of Egypt, she's not holding them, but they are behind her. That is interesting. Oh, it, it, it's really fascinating. Obviously, I can really geek out on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess finally, do you, is there anything else you want the listeners to know about your article? I guess, uh, for me, perhaps one of the most interesting things is I had no idea where it was going to go when I started it. There's a wonderful quotation from um, Albert Einstein that goes something along the lines of, uh, if we knew what it was we were doing, we wouldn't call it research, would we? So sometimes just diving into the unknown, taking a risk and just seeing where the evidence leads you, can be exhilarating and it can lead to neat stuff. I don't know if this is ultimately correct or not, but it's an interesting argument. I learned a lot from writing it, and I, I think that's the ideal in research generally. Uh, more specifically for the article, yeah. I hope people find it of interest <laughs> and want to learn more. <laughs> this has been a Friends of ASOR podcast. The Friends of ASOR Initiative is an outreach program of the American Schools of Oriental Research. Anyone can become a friend and it's free. Just go to asorblog.org backslash FOA registration to sign up. Again, that's asorblog.org backslash FOA registration. 
Thank you for listening, and be sure to check out the ASOR blog for all of our podcasts, videos, and more.